Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Theology and Dialogue brought to you by the Villanova University Department of Theology and Religious Studies. I'm Eric Kindler along with Jacob Given, and we're a couple of grad students studying theology here at Villanova. Today, we welcome the remarks of, of longtime Villanova theologian and philosopher, Dr. John Caputo. Dr. Caputo is the Thomas J. Watson Professor of Religion Emeritus at Syracuse University and the David R. Cook Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Villanova University. This year, he is visiting us as a visiting scholar in the humanities, and his thoughts regarding what he calls radical or weak theology, stemming from Schelling's stance on positive philosophy, serves as the center of this episode's discussion. Mm, Whew! Yeah. All right, baby. Yeah, here we go, Jake. It's a, it's a heavy one, but it's a good one, you know. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, so Schelling is a figure that a lot of people have probably not heard of because he's constantly overshadowed by Hegel in the history of philosophy. People at least know something about Hegel. They take a philosophy course, um, whether it's the, a sort of form of the dialectic or something about history, like they know who Hegel is and, and what he's about to some extent, right? But nobody ever, to you know, Schelling is an often uh, overlooked figure in a lot of ways. All, my, my roommate from last year actually is working on Schelling, and it was really interesting to hear some of the inside scoop of what's going on. Carl. In, in Schelling. Carl Hunt, Carl's, yeah, Carl. Carl's got a lot of insights on <laughs> Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right? And he actually responded in this in this talk to Caputo, but I think we're editing that out just because it's so long. Like the, the, Carl got a shout-out yeah. at the beginning of it. <laughs> awesome, yeah. Carl, Carl, uh, yeah. Carl is a, is a uh, really... Uh, um, uh, one of, one of the, if I have a question about Schelling, I go to Carl immediately. You know, okay. <laughs> but we should, uh, we should have brought him in for a cameo. Yeah, oh, yeah, that would have been good. But uh, you know, the 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 lecture itself with the Q and A and everything went pretty long, so we're gonna have to chop it down for the for the podcast format. But, All right, yeah. great, great. So this is a lecture on on. And, I, and you've talked to me about Caputo, his idea of, and he's got a few different names for this, like yeah. weak or, or radical theology, also theopoetics. Right. Yeah. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit more about, you know, what Caputo has done in the field of philosophy sure. and religious studies and theology? Yeah, so let, I, I mean, I think the central idea can go under a few names, like you said. Weak theology being one, radical theology being another, and theopoetics being another um, uh, name for it. Uh, weak theology, you could boil it down to the thesis that God does not exist, God insists. It's kind of the slogan of weak theology for for um, for Jack's late work, his, his latest sort of trilogy on God and, and, and his more theological turn recently. Um, and basically what that means is following sort of the continental philosophical critique of ontotheology, which is really... Uh, verbose way to say the critique of the idea that God is a big dude in the sky. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, <clears throat> Caputo kind of um, latches onto that critique and says God is not a being that exists alongside other beings. God actually is a weak force in this sort of way, and God is is sort of experienced in the world as a call or as a as a lure. Uh, which is resonant with a lot of sort of process thought. Sure, um, he's he's in conversation quite often with Catherine Keller, a okay. process theologian at Drew, um, uh, because of these resonances. I think huh. um, another name for it is radical theology. Mm-hmm. Radical theology being um, 
radical meaning the root, getting at the root of uh, what it is that animates religion. So he's not necessarily interested in this or that particular religious structure, but in the what he calls the event, the spark that animates these various religious structures. So Christianity, Judaism, um, whatever, like even, uh, even um, supposedly secular um, <coughs> uh, movements yeah. that have a religious dimension, right? Or even the religious dimension in our everyday lives, right? And this has been his turn to uh, to till it lately. Um, and what did I say? The third thing was theopoetics. Oh, theo- perfect. Yeah. So theopoetics is a sort of mode of discourse in which you're not as concerned with um, nailing God down or getting theology, getting getting the logic exactly right, or or sort of. Um, getting the metaphysics of things down into this into this precise way. I think the foil for this is kind of like the neo-scholastic mm-hmm. uh, manuals that a lot of people were were trained on in the sure. in the first part of the 20th century. Um, God is not a set of arguments, and a set of arguments is not going to get you to God, right? Theopoetics rec- as a discourse recognizes this and says rather that. God or the experience of God is something that is to be evoked through um, through uh, sort of possibilities inherent in poetic language. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think these are cool because that just talking about <coughs> Caputo is really fascinating to me because in terms of like constructive theologies, I knew pretty much like personally more like liberation theologies, sure, right? Yeah. So like Gutierrez and what have you, yeah. but. Um, I think one of our former uh, guests on this on this podcast, Sister Ilya Delio, yeah. she could have some really interesting, and she's reminding me of this, she could have some interesting insight on this because in class the other day, she was talking about evolution, right? Not mm-hmm. just as something that happened, but a, this this process yes. and how, you know, the sacramental life, livelihood of, uh, you know, God's creation and our, and his, pre, you know, his, you know, God's presence in this world is one that is a process. It's yes. complex. Yeah. And she had a great image in class of, you know, the, the benign grandfather, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. we saw and learned God as, as this right. systematic, right, anthropomorphic image versus this right next to it. It was basically just like the ex- ex- exploding cosmos, right. right, and this right. idea of process that is yeah. deeply interplayed, complex, mm-hmm. and beyond just like scientific, it can be poetic it can be exactly you know and, it, and it's funny because when we're talking about it just like on a mental level for me personally I, it's hard because it's so nebulous and it's hard you know you're grasping at it, it's like all right what does that mean mm-hmm. but it's really great to i don't know as i've seen in my life go into like spiritual practice right and be able to have that come to life and it's funny with a lot of constructive theologies they just seem to be these like because our words are so inadequate, right, it's right. like how can we adequately describe how we're experiencing God in our lives in this new world, this postmodern world we're living in? Right, so right. Caputo seems to provide some pretty interesting insight in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And and so I would say the thing that he's bringing to the table in this particular lecture that he hasn't from and that I'm aware of in his in his previous work is a is is centering on shelling as a resource for uh, thinking about <clears throat> God as a, as a sort of weak force, if you want to talk it that way, talk about it that way, or as a, as a, um, well, essentially doing weak theology through shelling. Right? Um, and so uh, I 
the title, I think, was something like it, whether existence can make itself worthy of the name of God, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a question, and it ends with a question mark, because God is not, for, for Caputo, God is not a, uh, uh, a strong being among beings that can exert God's force in the world, right, in this, in this sort of, like you were saying, grandfather in the sky kind of way, right? But actually, history ends with a question mark. Whether God actually <clears throat> will, the, the question that comes up during, during the Schelling lecture is whether God will prove God's self to be God, <laughs> or, or whether like, it will turn out that there was a God. And it, it, it's, a very, it's a very poetic and interesting way of trying to understand the weakness of that which we call God in history. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's great. I mean, there's a lot in here. I'm particularly interested in, and I know we should get to the lecture here in a second, but the idea of positive philosophy, mm-hmm. especially in terms of like existence preceding essence. He even said existence exceeds essence, mm-hmm. um, which in a lot of ways is is funny to me because when I first heard those terms, these were existential philosophers who mm-hmm. undoubtedly believed in no god. Mm-hmm. Right. And didn't believe in a purpose, maybe, um, you know, in their lives being here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the thing is, existence preceding essence is kind of an interesting idea because it means that the kinds of things that we are are malleable. We can become something other than what we are now. Right. Which to me. You know, people have taken it in very sort of atheistic directions mm-hmm. or whatever, or said, if there is a God, you're constrained to this particular essence or something like that. Um, but to me, it seems to open up a lot of possibilities for thinking about transformation and, uh, and um, thinking about really being changed by our beliefs and practices and being able to strive to become something different. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I agree. And it's really cool to to have this take from Dr. Caputo. So here are his remarks um, regarding theopoetics or radical theology or weak theology um, concerning Schelling's positive philosophy. Thank you very much, Terrence. It's, it's great to be back in the philosophy department. Um, I've been spending my time with, among theologians in the last 10 or 15 years, so it's, it's great to be back and see the uh, program flourishing. We, we, uh, Walter Bergen and I spent a, a lot of time fighting, persuading, cajoling the powers that be that this was a good idea. And uh, I think it's proven itself to be. Um, I'm interested in Schelling because I'm interested in Tillich. And I'm interested in Tillich because I'm interested in a project that I call uh, variously radical theology or weak theology or theopoetics or what we would probably just call here uh, continental philosophy of religion. (laughs) Um, Meaning not analytic, meaning 
not scholastic, meaning not trying to prove one more time the existence of God, the immortality of the soul, and the freedom of the will. The main point of which I think seems to be to provide for an anesthetic in case you're having your wisdom teeth removed. You know, nothing will reduce you to a, a, a more numb state than that stuff. Um, so I hesitate to call it kind of philosophy of religion because I hesitate to call it philosophy of religion because philosophy of religion seems intent upon uh, riding roughshod over what religion is. Um, when I took early retirement from Villanova to go to, to Syracuse, one of the reasons was uh, that the appointment was in the religion department, not the philosophy department. And I th probably, the philosophy department probably wouldn't have had me well, on my own. They, w they invited me to have a sort of honorary membership, but they, I don't think they would have. They would have certainly not invited me to be a regular member. This is a very analytic department. Um, so I thought, well, this is interesting to teach, to do what I do, whatever we're going to call it, um, among PhD students, with PhD students in religion, where, where you don't have to be, spend half of your time detoxifying the word religion. And where, in addition to, as you do with philosophy students, where in addition to that, they actually know something about religion. They've actually studied religion, and they don't have a head full of empty uh, prejudices about religion. And so it was, I, I, I've, I compared it to being a philosopher of science in a physics department. Um, and it was a great deal of fun. And they also didn't uh, confine religion to, uh, to Western Christian religion. As a matter of fact, the people who did Western, the Western Christian biblical tradition were in the minority at Syracuse. Um, so, so, and so they considered me the theologian in the department, but it was a kind of a strange sort of theology in the secular religion department. And I got, interest, I, I got interested in something that I, I remembered from Schelling about uh, a year or two ago. When I first started at Villanova, I actually used to teach uh, German idealism because the senior people in the department taught what, what continental philosophy there was, the senior people were teaching and not me. The, actually, the very first course I taught was in symbolic logic because, <laughs> because the chairman of the department hated symbolic logic and he was the one who taught symbolic logic and when he became the chairman, he, he didn't assign himself symbolic logic. He assigned me right. symbolic logic because I was the junior, the most junior member of the department. But after that, um, I had courses in German idealism. I did did that for about four or five years until the, the, the coalitions began to shift and I, I was able to move into teaching Heidegger and some other things. And about two years ago, I was working on something that I myself am trying to up, work out for, for myself, and I remembered Schelling. I remembered what I used to do with Schelling. A long, I, I mean a long time ago. I mean like 45 years ago. 
So this is, this is my 50th anniversary. I, I began teaching at Villeneuve in the fall of 1968. And I was there before that because I was a graduate student here back in 1962. So. And before that, when I was in high school, I was the editor of my high school newspaper and we had a high school editorial conference in 1956. So that was the very first time I ever set foot on Villeneuve. Anyway, I, I remembered a, for, uh, about, about 10 years ago, I, I started, I said to myself, I'm starting to sound like Tillich. I'm starting to say things like Tillich. And I looked, I looked back to see what Tillich was saying, and then I remembered one of the things that, um, that Schelling was saying, because what's interesting about Tillich is Tillich doesn't, he descends from German idealism, but not from Hegel. He descends from German idealism from Schelling. His first two dissertations were a master's dissertation in theology and a doctoral dissertation in philosophy were in on Schelling. And then he eventually wrote a habilitation dissertation on uh, supernaturalism. So, why, what's the Schelling in Hegel? Or what's, I'm sorry, what's the Schelling in, uh, in Tillich? That, that was the thing I started working on a couple of years ago. And it all worked out into this um, thesis that I'm going to present to you very briefly today. It's, it's just 4,000 words. Right? So it won't be too long, and we'll have time, plenty of time to talk. In this essay, I will take Schelling's positive, I mean, and I'm going to read to you. I don't normally read uh, in a situation like this, but it's only 4,000 words, and it, it's... It came out all right, so I want, I want you to hear the way I've written it. I will take Schelling's positive philosophy, the philosophy of existence, as a point of departure to stake out radical theology as a theology of what I will call existence. Turns out the very first time Derrida used the word, uh, used the, his own silent little a, petite a, uh, was not in difference, but in existence, which he spelled with an A because he was looking for a way to translate Dasein without calling it human. And so he was like 19. I don't mean to discourage you. Really. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was just out of the lycée, and he was uh, working on a philosophy paper. He still believed in God, and he was arguing for God and ethics and all that stuff. He was still a good, pretty good Jewish kid. And he, so he coins this word existence with an A. So I thought, this is a great word. And so I want to use it to refer to the existence with an A of God. So first section. Schelling's famous critique of Hegel in his Berlin lectures, attended by Kierkegaard, Engels, and Bakunin, among others, was organized under the name of positive philosophy. By this he meant a philosophy of existence which he distinguished from negative philosophy, by which he meant a philosophy of essence. Existence has to do with quad est, the fact that something is, the das. Essence has to do with quid est, what something is, quiditas, the vas. Positive philosophy addresses the actual empirical unfolding of history, well, negative philosophy confines itself to what is unfolding in the ideal and eternal realm of logic, 
in the concept. Schelling's criticism was aimed not at essence as such, but at what we might call essentialism. In essentialism, essence precedes existence and determines it, so that existence is the actualization or realization of a prevenient essence, which would ultimately waylay the spontaneity of freedom. In positive philosophy, existence precedes essence and exceeds it. Essence is made use of, but existence is free of essence, not subordinate to it. Positive philosophy, the priority of existentia over essentia, to use Heidegger's formula in being in time, invites the name of existentialism, an opportunity that Tillich, writing in the middle of the 20th century, did not fail to realize. For Tillich, Schelling's negative philosophy turns on the ideal and unbroken rule of the principle of identity, where contradiction is derived from and simply a moment in the life of identity, providing for an intellectual mysticism, an immediate unity with God. Positive philosophy, Tillich says, turns on the recognition of guilt and evil. So Tillich's study of Schelling is entitled Mysticism and Guilt Consciousness, Positive Philosophy and Negative Philosophy, Essence and Existence, Necessity and Freedom. Positive philosophy, Tillich says, turns on the recognition of guilt and evil on a genuine separation from God in need of restoration. In positive philosophy, identity is shattered by real contradiction, and Bazin must come to grips with a radical counterposition, radical, what Kant called radical evil. Positive philosophy is a philosophy of freedom. Essence and negative philosophy have a role to play Actually, he says the truly negative negative philosophy is ultimately positive because it posits the need for the positive. It has a role to play, but it's subordinate. Like a blue, what one commentator calls a blueprint for the world, supplying a necessary but not a sufficient condition, which means that if there is a world, the world cannot violate the requirements of, of essence. But just as no building ever came about just because there was a blueprint, so no essence has ever managed on its own to spontaneously burst into existence. No essence has ever oozed, exuded, or extruded existence. Existence, the facticity of the world, is separated by an abyss from essence. Here, Schelling is invoking criticism, Kant's criticism of the ontological argument. So much of German idealism is about that argument and proceeds from that argument, and from Kant's critique of that argument, that existence is not a predicate, one more derivable property of essence. Existence is of an entirely different order, not the order of a predication, but the order of what is posited. While essence and existence are separated by an abyss, still an abyss can be crossed by a leap of the will. Existence is the issue of the free and spontaneous act of God, 
It is the expansiveness of love versus the self-contraction self of selfhood who created the world to begin with, to which there corresponds our own, our own freedom, struggling with the same forces as God, but with less success. The existence of the world is not deduced, it is produced. The existence of the world is not derived, it arrives and is intuitively given. The world is an irrational. He'll often say irrational. I'm not sure that it, that's the best way to put it. It's, it's certainly, at this point, it's certainly irrational. An irrational contingent work of divine freedom, without which the world would remain an eternally unrealized possibility. By the same token, without our freedom, we would linger forever in an imaginary world of thought possibilities. Whenever reason reasons its way to necessity, it finds itself alone with itself, entertaining itself with itself. Noesis, noesios. The real and actual identity of thought and being, if you want to establish their identity, you have to recognize the abyss, which is sort of a Tillichian way of putting this. The real and actual identity of thought and being exacts a higher cost than that, an inbreaking of the world which occasions a wrenching ecstasis of reason. So all this stuff about being lost in, a, in your own world of thought while real existence is running on its own outside thought. There's this Danish guy in the audience writing all this down as quickly as, quickly as he can get it. Enter Kierkegaard's lampooning of Hegel. From a phenomenological point of view, Hegel, had, see, Schelling, had caught sight of what he called, using the word to be famous by, made famous by Heidegger, the facticity of the world, the sheer gratuity of the wor world, the sheer fact that, bas, there is a world, its utter being there at all, rather than not, and of what Heidegger called our thrownness in the world, our factical being in the world. We are delivered over to the naked that it is, machtes das ist, Heidegger says, where the whence and the whither are shrouded in darkness. Existence for Heidegger is always already, immer, schön. Schelling calls it the prios, meaning that existence always gets there first. Thinking is assigned to being, as Parmenides first pointed out, but thinking can never quite catch up with its assignment. It arrives late on the scene, Schelling said. Being, Schelling said, is das Unvordenkliche, literally, the unprethinkable, what thinking can never get behind, get his head around, objectify, precede, dominate or rule. Citing Aristotle, he says that being is stronger than thinking, 
anticipating, I would say, Vadimov's weak thought, Pantiero Debre, and what I like to call weak theology. Thinking, Pache Hegel, always takes place after the fact of being, posterior, trying to clarify being. Thinking goes as far as it can, but being goes all the way down. Being precedes reflection. Being recedes from reflection. Being exceeds reflection. Being is the unconditional. It gets there before thinking is able to lay down the conditions under which being is possible. The givenness of being, the happening of being, is pre-reflective, pre-conceptual, pre-propositional, pre-rational. When Leibniz famously asked, why is there something and not rather nothing, which was also the subject matter of Heidegger's famous lecture, What is Metaphysics? His why represents the long arm of thought trying to reach around being and get to the ground of being, which is a project, a projection, doomed to failure. To anticipate a point I will revisit below, thinking must give up its why, concede its limits, and admit that being is always already pre-given. The most thinking can do is be grateful for what has been given. In Heidegger's famous pun, which also works in English, denken ist danken, thinking is thinking, which means that being is given, a pre-given, a gift for which thinking gives thanks. And for Schelling, this gift is given in the face of the fact that being is astir with dark and irrational powers that strive to break loose and turn life into chaos, making life, James Joyce's famous pun, chaosmic, chaos, cosmos, chaosmos. A struggle between order and disorder, harmony and cacophony. Now, in the next section, the demonstration of God's existence. What is of special interest to me in showing is his notion that God, the divinity of the Prius, must be proven a posteriori, meaning over the course of history. Nature, he assures us, is a finished product, condemned to an eternal, uh, kind of eternal return of the same. It's gotten to us, it's produced us. Its work is finished. And now it simply labors in circle, in an eternal circle. If, if only he knew. But history, as opposed to nature, is very much uh, still in flux. For Schelling, history bears ongoing empirical evidence, living witness to the loving presence of God in history, thereby constituting a continuing proof of God's existence. Not a logical demonstration of a vice, but let's say a kind of historical monstration, air vice. 
When we say that a crowd of protesters in the street is engaged in a demonstration, we do not mean that they are making a reasoned argument, but that they are making a show, monstrare, of their convictions and desire, which may or may not be satisfied. History is like that. Not a logical showing or proof of God in the order of essence, but a living show or display of God on the streets of existence. History would, as Xavier Tilliat says, show retroactively the divinity of the absolute Prius. God is the subject of a peculiar proof, not a logical one, but an existential one, where we will see just how much being, life, and existence there is to God. History puts God to an existential test. God must be proven by God in history. Showing does not mean that the course of, of history would prove the existence of the Das, the Prius, the uber That's That's pre-given in a fundamental experience, what Heidegger would call a Grunderfahrung. He means it would prove whether the Prius deserves the name of the divinity. If you put it in Deleuzian terms, he's asking whether existence can make itself worthy of the name of God. Remember Deleuze's definition of ethics, to make yourself worthy of the events that happen to you. So we want to know whether existence can make itself worthy of the name of God. The genuinely radical question here is whether Schelling is prepared to admit that it may not. Whether history will prove God's presence will always remain in doubt so long as history goes on, if it's a genuine work of freedom. Freedom doesn't obey essence. Essences are necessary. Freedom is free from essence. Perhaps existence will never actualize this essential possibility. Perhaps the Das will pass over this possible Vas. Perhaps the Das will withdraw its fiat. Perhaps the Prius will decide against a self-revelation. Perhaps the Godhead, in its incomprehensible freedom, will freely choose to keep everything to itself. And there will prove to have been no God. History is not over till it's over, and we cannot be sure how it will turn out. Perhaps the Prius will simply look with indifference upon the world, or withdraw its creative act, or be content to be by itself like the self-identical noesis, noesios of Aristotle, deciding not to manifest itself, and then it cannot be called divine. Prius, the Prius super exists. The only question it could is whether the existence it produces proves itself worthy of the name of God. If we ask, does God exist? The answer is, we don't know yet. It has yet to be decided. It might turn out that God does not exist, that God will not have existed. Question is, how seriously should we take history? 
Is Christianity a subjective phenomenon in our private lives? Or does it play a substantive role in the actual unfolding of God, in the realization of God's life? Where the pure das, being a pure will, to will to remain concealed, the that would remain the that. And so to speak, that would be that. That was a joke. <laughs> then God would never get to be God. God would never get to be, but would, would be, remain behind or above or prior, concealed forever in eternal beyond beingness. Needless to say, this is a complicated suggestion and it bears several interpretations. Schein keeps his distance from both a strictly theistic view of God as a separate individual wholly removed from creation, as unmindful of us as Aristotle's Noesis Noesios, as well as from a pantheistic God. Pantheism in those days meant Spinoza, who was dissolved into creation. It would mean Spinoza and necessity uh, naturalism. His God has features of both views. And as such, it is a predecessor of what we would today call panentheism, entertoic. God is the essential being of beings, but this being is not suspended in midair because God is an individual substance. You've got both theses. In a wonderful expression, he, he speaks of God as das, was das Seiende ist. That which is what is. The one who is, that which being is. This is, this is an antico-ontological formula that invites an interesting comparison with Aquinas' notion that God is ipsum esse per se subsistence, meaning both being itself, what the, what the being is, what being is, beingness, being being itself, both being itself and individually subsistent. So God is an ens and ipsum esse subsistent. Ipsum esse. Ipsum esse subsistens. So he's saying something like that. It's not by any means the same, but it's, it's something like that. This individual being is what Schelling calls God's selfhood or, or egoism, which contracts the divine being to itself like a centripetal force, as opposed to God's personal being as love, which is expansive, centrifugal, communicative of being, world-creating. Now, another uh, radical way to put to approach this point is to distinguish between the absolute and God. For Schelling, human thought can get as far as the absolute, but it cannot establish that the absolute is God. That further step must be taken by God, not by us. 
before Kant, the proofs for the existence of God, so this is the pre-Kantian arguments now. The proofs for the existence of God started with the firm reality of the finite world, which provided the basis for crossing the infinite distance from the finite to the infinite. Kant showed that all such arguments would fail because they depended upon showing that what they proved was God, not simply a necessary being. And that, in turn, required a second step, which was the ontological argument, which Kant famously refuted. Taking the pre-critical proofs to be an exercise in futility, so Kant's decisive refutation of the ontological argument is the pivot from pre-critical to critical philosophy, to critical theory, critical to idealism. Taking the pre-critical proofs to be an exercise in futility, the idealist proposed the opposite. The way to the infinite is to annul the finite, to bring to bear upon the transient and multiple things of experience the infinite pressure of being and truth under which they give way to the inexhaustible, imperishable, infinite depths of being. It's not a matter of crossing an infinite distance, which you're never going to do. If you start from something finite, you're finished. You'll never get there. Tillich says, Thomas Aquinas beginning of atheism. It began with the finite conditional world. He cut the cord of the ontological argument. He cut the wires which link us ontologically to God. And then that's it. You're finished. You're never going to get out of You'll never get out of there. It's not a matter of crossing an infinite distance, but of realizing that we always and already stand in the infinite. And then of reaching clarity about where we stand. Reason means the power to see the infinite in the finite to see through the finite to the infinite, which is what Schelling had meant earlier on by an intellectual intuition. This is an evocative approach. It bears comparison to what Heidegger called the hermeneutic circle and to Paul's address on the unknown God at the Areopagus. We live and move and have our being, he said. In he didn't put the rest of it quite this way. We live and move and have our being. He didn't even say that. He was quoting an inscription on one of the pagan statues. We live and move and have our being in an implicit pre-understanding of being, pre-conceptual and pre-propositional, which it is ontology's task to bring to explicit concepts. We always already are and have an understanding of being, always and already stand under being's primal sway. And no matter how far we sway from being, being abides in us. We may be alienated from being, but being is nothing alien. A formula that lies at the heart of Schelling, Heidegger, and Tillich.
if you haven't done so already, one of the finest things I've ever read in my whole life in philosophy is Tillich's essay on the two kinds of philosophy of religion. It's just utterly brilliant. And it's in pretty good English for a German guy. So for Schelling, if there is a path to the absolute, we require still another path to the living God. For if we say that the absolute is being itself, it is still another thing to say that it is God who is being itself. If it turns out we can say God is being itself, we cannot say being itself is God. Because maybe it is not. And how would we know that? Except a priori. But that's negative philosophy. There is no rational necessity. We cannot deduce or stipulate things a priori about God. Except you can define them any way you want. The matter of God's existence has been taken out of our hands and delivered over to existence, to living history. God is what God chooses to be, and all we can do is try to fathom his will after the fact by way of experience. We might slightly recast the standard translation of Exodus 3.14 to read, I am who I choose to be. I am free to be or not to be. As Robert Charlemagne points out, Schelling goes farther, further than Anselm, quoting Char Charlemagne now. Which is greater, a God who must be and cannot not be, so that he cannot even be thought not to be? Or a God who, as Lord of being, is free to be or not to be, and thus free to be thought or not to be thought to be? End quote. If existence, as Kant said, is not a predicate, then existence must prove itself. We know there is something absolute about being, but not that it is God. To think the absolute is a necessity of reason, to think God is a free choice, because God is freedom. The idea of God as a necessary being is of a, pure, is a purely negative value. That is, God would not be something less. That is a purely anthropocentric view, a necessity, a negative restraint imposed on human thinking. And it needs to be supplemented by a theocentric and positive point of view, which is to let God be God, to let God lead the way, to follow God's witness to himself in history. But in what sense is this a choice and not of a matter of choice and not a, a, of logic? At this point, we are reminded of Schelling's very early Fichtean stage. We are reminded of a point that Fichte made, that the resolution of the conflict between freedom and necessity is found not in a rational argument. Kant had shown that was an antinomy. It lies in a choice about our moral character. The choice comes down to who is deciding, moral man or amoral man, or better still, the choice comes down to whether it is a who who is willing, personal and free, or a what, impersonal and deterministic, a program. Once again, we get help from Deleuze, 
The question is not, what does this mean, thinking about God? The question is not, what does this mean, negative philosophy, but who or what is willing, what wills, what desires here? Just positive philosophy. This is Schelling's either-or, his ethico-religious decision. Either we posit the absolute alone with itself, with itself and hold that all there is is the dark, blind actuality of the that, of pure Prius, holding that life and love, beauty and ethics, the whole constellation of ethico, aesthetico, religious categories, the realm of the personal, all this, all these things are pure illusions, merely phenomenal appearances. Or we could say that the dark, overwhelming power and sublimity of the Prius becomes beautiful. Its dark incomprehensible, incomprehensibility makes itself known. Its terrible strict law becomes gift and grace. Its solitary self-identical unity becomes the manifold of the world of space and time. Holding that all this is real, not just appears, and it all happens in nature, and still more perfectly, in history. Reason cannot resolve this. This is a choice. First of all, God's choice, in love, to communicate his being. And secondly, our choice, to affirm it, as God's choice. So we stand in a hermeneutical circle, and we have a choice to make hermeneutically, about whether to take the world as God's creation. The her a hermeneutic as. It's a hermeneutic as that belongs to a speculative hermeneutics, not a phenomenological hermeneutics. What Catherine, Catherine Malibu calls Hegel's, in a, book, a wonderful book on Hegel, his speculative hermeneutics. He's interpreting the history of being as he's interpreting history as the history of being. It's a, it's a hermeneutic rendering in, in speculative metaphysical terms. I think, I think that's exactly what uh, Schelling has in mind. Let's call it that, of course. If we want all this to be real and not mere appearance, then we must affirm that its reality has a fundamentum in re, a foundation in being, in the being of beings, in the ground of being, in God. This is God proving himself to be God in the world. Beyond being God's autobiography, the history of the world is God's auto-verification, auto-identification. We are free to dismiss the aesthetico-ethico-religious categories, the whole sphere of the living and the personal, by dismissing the personal God. But we cannot have one without the other. We cannot have the true, the good, and the beautiful in human life without the other, the personal God whose life is unfolding in it. So in a way, there's another Prius at work for showing, and that is love. Love is, a, love is a given that he is not giving up. So there's the brute existence of, of uh, being on the one hand, and then there's love. This raises the question about whether history could fail, whether God would fail to be God because God would need us to be God 
And we cannot be relied upon because what is a harmony of the potency in God is in us cacophony. In the human spirit, the self-centeredness of the first potency, what he calls the first potency, can run riot. I think that Schelling would admit this failure is in principle possible, especially because he prizes the open-endedness of the future, what Derrida calls the unforeseeability of the to come. But I also think he thinks it will not happen, that God will not fail. The cards of Christian eschatology are stacked in our favor, which can be seen in the study of the history of the world, at the core of which is the history of religion. His philosophy of history is ultimately a philosophy of religion. This history discloses a movement from mythology, where the darkness of the first irrational potency is predominant, to the light of revelation, where the second irrational potency realigns the first and allows the third full play. I, I don't know whether you've been doing any show. That won't make any sense at all if you haven't. <laughs> but if you have, you know what it is. Carl knows what it is. After paganism, the Greeks and the Jews, the time is right. The stage is set for God to freely reveal himself in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was exalted into the Christ by his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into the invisible realm, whereupon he left his spirit to inspire history. So the unforeseeability of the future for Schelling is ultimately steadied by the guidance of the spirit in the world, by the fact that God has assumed the form of sin and selfhood and conquered it. That's a stilic thing, that God, has, God recognizes the reality of, the, of guilt and sin and assumes, it, assumes the form of selfhood, which is the source of sin, and conquers it in, in the cross. Now, rushing to a conclusion. So I excerpted this from a paper, that, that section, the Schelling section from a paper, which is, belongs to a, a larger paper, establishing what I'm calling the existence of God. So this, and this, and I, so this part is for you. I, just, I wrote this for you. Special, <laughs> special delivery. Schelling's views are both sanguine and Christocentric. They are vulnerable on both fronts. His philosophy of nature draws upon the, a very limited knowledge available to him at the time of the history of the natural universe, which is far from over. And from most accounts, not the only account, but widely received account, this universe is headed for entropic oblivion. This makes nonsense of having the entire history of the cosmos turn on events transpiring in a tiny specter of stardust in a remote corner of the universe. You've been here. Large majority of people, very recent arrivals on this obscure little planet, are not Christian and have hardly even heard of Christianity. And in many cases where they have, are, not, are very militant about never becoming Christian. We take Schelling at his word. God has not been particularly successful at demonstrating his existence in history. It has been 2,000 years and counting in the reign of the dark powers of what Paul calls the powers and principalities is largely unchecked. Schelling has a great basis for interpreting the interpretation in the way the, uh, inter the, the crucifixion in the way it was interpreted in the New Testament as a battle with the back dark powers. But he ends up biting Anselm's Cordaeus Homo and, and takes it to be a, recommend, a 
compensation for sin, paying off sin and paying off discharging guilt. Uh, but but he, he was on the he practically recovered what Paul was saying in, in the New Testament. The afflicted so uh, the reign of the dark powers, what Paul calls the powers and principalities, is largely unchecked. The afflicted continue to be con afflicted, the comfortable made ever more comfortable. As the Jewish theologian James Kugel puts it, the record of God intervening on behalf of his friends and making his enemies his footstools is so bad that we have to wonder why the theologians keep bringing it up. Thus far, God's record in bearing witness to his existence leaves a lot to be desired. There is some question as to whether there will have been God on, on these terms. My own view of the matter is that there has been a misunderstanding, that the power of God, of what he calls the Lord of being, of the kingdom, of the rule or reign of, of God. So the New Testament was a battle between the dark powers of darkness and the powers of God, and God was going to, God sent Jesus into the battle, and Jesus took a hit, and then Satan took the bite, took the bait, fell upon him, and God raised him from the dead and crushed Satan. That's the story. Nothing about an infinite debt that can only be discharged by a God-man or anything, any, any, any Anselmian rationalism. It was a battle of the powers. It was Star Wars, <laughs> the evil empire. My own view of the matter is that there's been a misunderstanding that the power of God, the Lord of being, of the kingdom, of the rule or reign of God is precisely not a matter of existence but of insistence. That the name of God is the name of a call, a lure, a solicitation, a summons to make the name of God come true. My own proposal is to move beyond strong theology to weak, beyond theology to theopoetics, beyond essence to insistence, beyond existence to existence. By the insistence of God, I mean the call that takes place in and under the name of God, which comes to us in a multitude of forms, in art, in science, in public and private life, in events big and small, in response to which our lives take shape and form. The call fetches us beyond the routinized and thoughtless habits of everydayness and requires something more decisive of us beyond the standard expectations of the possible to what Derrida likes to call the possibility of the impossible, to what Schelling, Tillich, and Derrida all alike call the unconditional. The call calls upon us from without. It does not originate with us, but it does terminate in us, putting us in the accusative. As Levinas says, me voici. It does not start with us, but it ends with us landing in our laps. It can only be realized and materialized by us. The call does not mean that a super being is calling us, breaking into time from eternity. The name of God is not the name of a super agent. This is Tellig's critique of supernaturalism. The name of God is not the name of a super agent, but of the call that gets itself called, as Heidegger says, in the middle voice in the impersonal third person, as when we say, it is raining. 
we don't mean there is some particular thing doing something, but rather that something is happening as a result of a confluence of a multiple atmospheric conditions. In it, the poet Paul is citing says, we live and move and have our being, to which we add, in us, it enlivens, moves, and has its being. It works both ways. It's a hermeneutic circle. By the existence of God, I mean that it is up to us to bring about the existence of God. Now I'm giving you a kind of hermeneutical, phenomenological, deconstructive rendering of Shelley. The existence of God refers to the way God comes to be in the world, the way the world comes to be in response to the name of God and the, what the world would look like, what we would look like, were we responsive to this call. Existence is to be distinguished from existence, the pure das, as the transformed world is tran distinguished from the untransformed world. The validation of the insistence of the call is found in the response, by which I mean existence. By answering the call, we also bear witness to the insistence of the call. We prove the insistence of the call by responding to it. We do not first prove it exists, establish its authority, and then respond. In the case of uh, responding, the more we know about the, the caller, the less responsible we are, the more we're just following orders. The more obscure the call is, the more responsible we are for, for it and for interpreting it. We prove the, the insistence of the call by responding to it. We do not first prove it exists, establish its authority, and then respond. For all the world, the existence of God is like dancing to music the world cannot hear. This is several results which I can only adumbrate in dogmatically. I, mean, I will proclaim them. It's a Catholic university. I can speak ex cathedra. Um, in one in a paragraph. First, God's existence is intermittent, episodic, and chancy, to be found wherever offense is met with forgiveness, suffering with compassion, and the stranger met with hospitality, which is more often a matter of hope than of fact. Two, theology, properly speaking, is a theopoetics, a set of discursive resources, of narratives and striking sayings, etc., that serve to evoke and give words to the solicitation. Revelation, third, revelation is a revelation not in a supernatural sense, as if a divine being has broken into the world, passing along special information otherwise unavailable to us, but a theopoetic revelation. So what Shelley means by a philosophy of revelation. It, is, it didn't break, come, break into uh, the world from the sky. It can... It, it, it belongs to, we, we, we can get at it, we have access to it. It is beyond reason, the way a work of art eludes any formal argument, which is a point that Shelley, Shelley made his reputation by making that point when he said, when he wrote a philosophy of nature to intervene on, on, on um, fictus. Voluntarism. Fourth, the distinction Shelley makes between mythology and revelation, I think, is spurious. 
I think these are also many differing theopoetic formations, deeply rooted in their culture, in a form of life, what Heidegger calls the mode of being in the world. That's what Tilly called a theology of culture. Five, in the more radicalized view I defend, all theology is a theology of culture. There never was and never could be a theology, which is not a theology of culture. Six, faced with the unprethinkable character of being, with the dead end thinking reaches and asking why, the ultimate religious moment lies in living without why. A motif of Rhineland mysticism that belongs to the genealogy of Schelling's Ungrund. That is what I understand by the existence of God, which I am formulating here under the influence of Derrida. Unlike Schelling's Tillich, Schelling and Tillich, where the unconditional is an ontological ground, for Derrida, the ground becomes a more groundless ground. Pretty groundless already in Schelling, but, <laughs> it, but it's even more groundless. No longer ontological, but ontological, belonging not to the order of being, but to the order of the call or the promise. Unlike Heidegger, the ontological difference becomes the ontological difference. The unconditional is not a geist, but a ghost. Not a spirit, but a specter. The issue of the instability of difference, difference, not instant, of the clouded memory and the no less clouded promise lodged in a complex legacy without ontological support. We are disturbed by an uncanny, unheimlich visitor, an unanticipatable tutot. This unconditional without sovereignty is neither a being nor being itself, neither finite nor infinite. It does not exist. It insists. It calls for existence. The promise is a pure promise, exposed in all of its powerless power, without a panentheistic ground, without the theistic omnipotence to protect it. Bases Islands, that went longer than I thought. <laughs> It really was only 4,000 words, I don't know. Thank you again for Dr. Caputo's remarks. Jake, yeah. any final things regarding this very, I don't know, dense material? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, 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 what I would say is if you're interested in this kind of thing, and you're intimidated by the kind of uh, the kind of um, lecture you may have just heard. Uh, I would say the best thing you can do is to just jump, dive in, dive into the uh, to the to philosophy and theology. It's going to be hard at first, you know. Um, uh, but <laughs> I, I would recommend, you know, Caputo's work is is uh, is very. Um, helpful in this regard so uh, he has a his book called philosophy and theology that's a very um, very good text that i think a lot of our some of our professors actually require it for their um, undergrads in in um in thl 1000 okay 
He's got a book called On Religion that really gets at what he sees as like the essence of religion. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, I mean, you know, poke around, explore. Um, you know, if you got, if y'all listening, if you're friends with me on Facebook or follow me on Twitter, like, you know, hit me up and uh, keep keep uh, chipping away at it. It's it's uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, I saw that he's teaching a class here in the spring. Yeah, it's going to so, be on this very subject. That's cool. That's yeah. cool. So I, I was looking at it. It actually, I don't I don't know what my schedule is going to be for the spring, but I was like, I've circled it because it's no. someone we know, you know, you've talked about him and seems to fit the schedule. I might I might have to I have to explore that a little more. Yeah. So that could be pretty cool. But all right, well, thank you again, Dr. Caputo. Please make sure if you like what we're doing on Theology and Dialogue, Please subscribe, share with your friends. I don't know, put us on social media even. Yeah. All right, what's our Twitter handle again, Jake? At Theo in Dialogue. That's at T-H-E-O-I-N-D-I-L-O-G-U-E. Did I spell it right? Uh, <laughs> you lost me at L, man. Theo in Dialogue. <laughs> All right, I'm Eric Kindler. Have a good one, everybody. Peace.